We'll get to the Sermon on the Mount here in a minute. Woo! Come on. Y'all with me, Shane? I mean, he never promised the cross will not be heavy. And that sometimes I think we, when we come into a relationship with Jesus, that we think that's going to give us smooth sailing for the rest of our lives, that we're now child of God and, and things are supposed to be easy for us. But if you start in Genesis and work your way forward, there are not stories of, of God taking the problems out and away from the people. They're stories of God taking the people through the problems. Through the problems. Our social media theology, got to be careful here. Our social media theology will put out a meme that says, God found Joseph in a pit, and he found the three Hebrew children in a fire, and he found Daniel in a lion's den. And he pulled them out and used them. You all know this. You all have seen those kinds of things, right? But here's what we got to keep, keep our mind in. That's not the first time God found them. These individuals had been serving God when these trials came in their life. If your goal is to ease along in life and not to truly follow God, just get enough of him for fire insurance, then when your trial shows up, you're not prepared. I've, I've mentioned this before, that God's love is unconditional. But God's blessings in our life are very much conditional. And if we want him to pull us from the fire and to take us from the pit, we can't wait until we're in trouble. So that's what this Sermon on the Mount series is going to be about. Our goal through this series is to lead us to a point of being as the, as the character of a disciple is shown here, we are wanting to have this portrait of a disciple to be descriptive of us as a follower of Jesus. So that when our trials come, we are already in such an intimate relationship with Jesus that he pulls us out of the fire again. I love that phrase, again, again. He's not going to do it once and, and walk away from you. He's going to continue our goal, as you've heard me say many, many times, is to understand that the more we know, the more we grow. If you're type A and like to fill in all your blanks, there's the first two blanks on the back of your worship guide. The more you know, the more you grow. The first three beatitudes we studied last week are the beatitudes of need. They are poor in spirit. They are mournful over sin. We are meek. These three beatitudes of need, those three beatitudes that point out the needs each of us have in our life lead to the fourth, leads us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we, when we realize we're poor in spirit, when we realize we have nothing to offer God, that, that we need him, when we do that and then we become very sensitive to sin, not only the sin in our own lives and we mourn over sin in our culture and sin over people that we love, we mourn over sin and then we found ourselves to be meek, understanding that we need to be humble before God, not pushing our agenda on other people, but pushing God's agenda on them and following his way. When we do all of that, we begin to hunger and thirst to be more like Jesus. Because we know being like him is the goal. This hunger and thirsting for righteousness is an, it's an insatiable ongoing desire to learn more about God. 
Because the more we know about God, the more we will love God, and the more we will want to please Him by being like His Son. Hungering and thirsting is not demonstrated by merely attending a worship service or coming to Sunday school. Those things are very important, and you won't hear me ever say, don't come to a worship service and don't come to Sunday school. But if that's all we are doing, then I don't know that we can truly say we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If we are truly hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we're going to be studying our Bible on our own. We're going to be praying on our own and having fellowship with one another so that iron can continue to sharpen iron. Hungering and thirsting is illustrated through intentionality for the purpose of learning more about God. It's not just to have more knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, the Bible says. It's not so you can run the full category anytime the Bible's on jeopardy, which I do love doing that, by the way. I love it when the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, something like that is a category on jeopardy. I'm like, come on, give, give me a buzzer. But that's not the only reason we grow. That's not the reason for learning more about Jesus so that you can dominate in Bible trivia. We recognize that we are poor in spirit and that we have nothing to offer God. We recognize after that that, in, 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 that we have to mourn our sin, that it's not anything we should be proud of. It's not anything to just get used to, that we have to be sensitive to it. And then we are going to be humble and meek before God and before others. So our beatitudes of need lead us to our point of no. You need to know more about God. Because you understand these things about yourself. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness or desiring to be like Jesus leads us then into the five through eight beatitudes. Number five through eight, the beatitudes of action. Actions that Jesus demonstrated in his own life and his own ministry. These beatitudes are a manifestation of, it's a revealing of the transformation that is taking place in us. By the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not anything that we can do on our own. You can't go to the self-help section and figure out how to improve yourself in the eyes of God. You yourself don't have the power. It's you working in your own power that got you in the mess to begin with. So it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's outward expressions that begin with the inward attitudes of the Beatitudes of need. So our Beatitudes of action will stem from our growing. It will stem from grow. Now, I wrote that early in the week. And this morning, as I read back over my notes, I really didn't like that phrase, stem from grow. That, I don't like that. Really, what it would be is if you get rid of stem from, if you want to mark it out in, your, in yours and, and put the word quantify, that's what I would rather have there. It quantifies our growth. It shows, there. it demonstrates. It, these beatitudes of, of action are going to show us in and of ourselves and anyone around us that we are continuing to grow in Jesus. In short, it would say, you're, not, you're more merciful today than you were yesterday. You are more pure in heart today than you were yesterday. You are more, and it goes on and on, and it shows, and it's the only way that we can really quantify that we're growing. But don't miss this. We need to clarify this. The more you know, the more you have the potential to grow. Nothing changes if nothing changes. Knowing more about God is vital for growth, but simply knowing more does not automatically 
change us. And simply wanting to change doesn't change us. Discipline is what changes us. Now, I can't motivate you to change. You can get the best life coach. You can find the best motivator. Uh, you can go to get, and get someone. I don't know if we used to watch. Uh, I don't know if you. If it's, if, I don't even think it's on anymore. Um, the Biggest Loser. Did you ever watch The Biggest Loser? And they had different coaches on The Biggest Loser to motivate people to lose weight. And Peg and I would sit there and she'd say, "Yeah, yeah, uh, I couldn't have that coach. She didn't want them. She wants encouragement. She doesn't want hollering, right? She doesn't want them." you know, making her feel bad about herself to motivate her. She, no matter what style of motivation you need, whatever style you prefer, whether it's all words of encouragement, whether it's I get up in your face and I'm hollering at you. I remember one time I was doing some CrossFit and I know you can't tell by looking at me now, but I used to do CrossFit and uh, I was struggling this particular day and we were doing, you ever done uh, squats and lunges together? Y'all with me? That hurt right there just doing that. So, so we, were, we were doing these things and I was about to quit. I was about to say, I'm nobody's hero. I can drop these weights. I can move on. It's all good. About the time I was ready to let it go, the trainer was right beside me saying, keep going, Kenan. And I thought, oh, that was good timing. It almost reminds me of that song. The song we just sang or the choir sang. God will show up in that moment. Sometimes you need just a little encouragement and a little motivation, but if I motivate you only, that's not going to get it done. I can't dictate to you or command you to change. I can't tell you, stop doing that. Because you're going to say, you're not the boss of me. However, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he is the boss of you, or he's supposed to be. You have to be inwardly and intentionally committed to change. And then, and only then, can the Holy Spirit work in you. Because we have the ability, the Bible tells us, to, that we can quench the working of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to force himself on you. If he did, we would be robots. If he, could do, if he could automatically just make you what you wanted to be and you had no control over that, then he's not, you're not worshiping him out of love. You're worshiping him out of obligation and out of being caused to do it. He wants you to worship him because you love him. He wants you to change to be like him because you desire to be like him. So you have to have an inward motivation. You see where we are. You see where we've been. We've got these things in our, in our beatitudes of need. And now it's moving to beatitudes of, of action. So let's get into it and talk about the merciful for just a moment. Chapter 5, verse 7 of Matthew. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Merciful is a, a person who shows leniency, compassion, that's a good word, or forgiveness, especially towards someone who has offended them. This can be a very broad focus, compassion for the weak and the suffering. It has been said that the best, the best understanding and demonstration and reality of someone's life, that if, if you really want to see who people are on the inside, see how they treat people who can do nothing for them. See how they treat people who are weaker than them, who need more than them. See how they can treat. Well, Jesus demonstrated mercy and compassion for the weak and the suffering. In verse, Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, he healed the sick. And it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. 
He healed their sick because he had compassion on them. He fed the hungry in Matthew 15, 32. It says, then Jesus calls his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. They needed a Big Mac. They had, he had compassion. And he forgave sinners in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. And says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgave out of compassion. He came to us in compassion. It, while we were still yet sinners, he died for us. That's how he demonstrated his love, Paul tells us. It's compassionate. Now, I want to tell you there in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, just as a side note, when we lived in Louisville, I heard, we heard a guy on the radio doing a devotion, and he talked about the paralytic. He put his emphasis on the wrong syllable. It was the paralytic instead of the paralytic. And I'll be honest with you, that's become a joke in our house. And so in our house, when we talk about the scriptures like this, we typically will say paralytic for fun. And I was scared to death. I was going to read that as paralytic. So if ever I do, just know that's where that's coming from. There's a broad focus when it comes to showing mercy. It's showing mercy to people who are weaker than you. It's showing mercy to people who can't affect you or help you. It's showing, people that, showing mercy to people who have nothing for you. And it's reminiscent of God being able to show us mercy when we had nothing to offer him. But then Jesus gets a little bit right in our business. He narrows the focus. When he talks about forgiving those who offend you. You understand the phrasing that we use in the English language is, I took offense. I took offense to what they said. I took offense to what they did. You understand that you are, and according to grammar, you are the one instigating the, 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 the issue there. You took the offense. They lay it out there. They tee it up for you. Whether it's something they've said, something they've done, something that someone has done about your family. You can, you can lay out the issues. Whatever it is, however it is. But they've teed it up. But you have chosen to take the offense. Therefore, that infers that you also have the option to not take the offense. Sometimes in our flesh... You say, Kenan, that sounds really good. That sounds really like it should be easy, that we should be able to move on without any trouble. But the truth is, and the reality is, in our flesh, we're human beings, we have feelings, and our feelings get hurt often. That's the reality of life. But what do we do with it is the question. Do you harbor it? Do you hold on to it? Do you feel like you are showing a you having a grudge against someone and being offended by someone? Do you somehow feel like that gives you power over them? In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Jesus talking with Peter. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In Jewish custom, three was the number. Peter thinks he's going above and beyond by giving them seven. Jesus is saying it's beyond that even. It's seven is the number of perfection. So Jesus isn't saying keep, keep making tally marks in your ledger and keep up with it. And when you get to 78, you're done with that person. You, cannot, you can now hold something against them. 
His point is that just because he uses the word seven here, he is looking at the idea of perfection, completion. He says your, your forgiveness for others needs to be complete. There isn't a reason. There isn't an exception given in Scripture when we are to hold an offense against someone. So it rolls us into being pure in heart. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart in a state of, is a state of ritual cleanliness or free of guilt and sin. Being pure in heart is the idea of being free of guilt and the sin in the way that you are living your life, and that is your entire life. You don't separate. You don't make categories. You don't say, this is my business life. This is my work life. This is my secular life. This is my being at the ball field life. Parents, there was a time I considered maybe I would make a little extra money to help the family. I told Peg, I said, I've been involved with baseball and softball all my life. I should probably be an umpire, Chuck. And Peg said, no, I don't think you should. Because she knows me and that you come at me enough and I'm not going to be able to keep my mouth shut. And she says, Keenan, you're a pastor in a church in this town. You do not need to be doing that. I don't know if I should have been offended at that or not, but I often say Peg is my little H Holy Spirit, so she keeps me straight. So uh, it's, it's about all our life. It's not just in your spiritual life. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The psalmist mentions clean hands and a pure heart. A pure heart is being right before God in your motivations and intentions. It's your will. It's your way of being and it's your way of making decisions. It's coming from the inside out. In your heart of hearts, your desire is to not be sinful. Your desire is to be like God. Your desire is to be made in the image of his son. And clean hands then relates to our actions. You can see how this verse in Psalms actually goes very well with our Beatitudes. You start on the inside, and now you've moved to the outside. Your clean hands, that means the things you do. It's your behavior. We often talk about, and you can see how often we talk about, and we start with what we value in our attitudes. I know you're probably getting tired of hearing me start there, but that's where it all begins. Our doing of life and our behaviors are overflows of who we truly are on the inside. What do you value? What are your attitudes? Well, you've heard me say it before. You can fake it to other people. You can act like you care. You can act like, and because you don't want to be embarrassed or you want to put on a show or you, don't, or you want to make sure that you're not uh, uh, being looked down upon by the church crowd or you, you fill in the blank there. That you can fake it and make it look a certain way for a certain amount of time. But eventually what's on the inside of you is going to come out. In another verse, Jesus says, we know a tree by its fruit. A good tree only produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. You don't get figs from thistles. You don't get oranges from an apple tree. Whatever's on the inside is what's going to come out when, it's, when you're squeezed. So we're pure in heart. A disciple of Jesus Christ is also a peacemaker. 
Verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is, this is the one in particular that I want to point out what the outcome is. You shall be called son or a child of God. When you are a peacemaker, you look more like God than any other time possibly. And I feel like that's when they look at you and say, that's a child of God. I remember when I was wee to a grasshopper, I was a wee little fella, and I'd gone to the store with my grandfather. Now, I didn't grow up in northeast Alabama where my parents grew up, but that's where my grandparents still lived. So we would go to Winfield, Tennessee. Anybody familiar? Anybody been through there? If you blinked, you missed it. Winfield, Tennessee is where my dad grew up, and that's where my grandfather lived. And I got in the car and took my life in my own hands riding with Papa to the store. And Papa we walking through and we're coming through uh, to pay for this stuff. And the young lady, actually not that young, she was young, probably about my age then. She looked at me and looked at my grandfather and says, I don't even have to ask who he belongs to. Because I looked so much like my daddy when I was little. She didn't even have to ask. When we are being peacemakers, people don't even have to ask if you're a child of God. Because that's when you look the most like him. A peacemaker is a mediator who tries to bring about harmonious relations between two opposing parties. Think of how Jesus is the peacemaker. The opposing parties was us as mankind who is sinful and God who is holy. He brought peace and brought our parties together. He was our mediator. He still stands as our mediator with, the God, with God our Father as he is at his right hand. It comes from the idea, the, the, uh, the Hebrew word shalom, meaning total well-being, both personally and communally. When we are a peacemaker, it's the idea that we will negotiate peace. We will pursue it. We will make it. And we will live in peace. Think about it. It says we are the child of God. We look like our heavenly father when we are making peace. It tells us in Isaiah that he is the prince of peace. It tells us through the writings of Paul in Galatians that, that God, he is the God of peace and that we will not only be a child of the God of peace, that we will have the God of peace with us in Galatians chapter six. We are peacemakers, but often that's not describing us roll around, scroll through social media. Just because, just because what another group of people are doing is wrong does not mean we have to always point it out. What would the image be of our church if we had a scrolling sign or a big sign out front or a billboard and every time somebody drove by, they saw what we were all against all the time. This would not be a church known for love. This would, not be a church, this would be a church known to be judgmental. And that's the way we come across on, on social media. I know I'm getting right up in your business, but if your posts tend to be about what you're against all the time, then that's all people see about your relationship with Jesus. So we're supposed to live in peace. And then comes the question, why do we put ourselves in situations we know will disrupt our personal peace? There are people in my life that speak into those personality traits of mine that I want to keep pushed down. What do I mean? They can, they're, they're critical people. 
So when I'm around them, when they get going, oh, I jump right in there with them. There was a time I was doing hospital visits at a former church. I was down, when I was down in Gardendale, I was, I, Thursday was my day to do hospital visits. And I drove from hospital to hospital listening to talk radio. Rush Limbaugh. Um, and then, then Glenn, Glenn Beck. I was listening to these guys and didn't always agree with everything they were saying, but they were controversial. They were critical. They were up in your face. They were, and what they were saying might have been right, but in my heart, I was putting that kind of spirit in me, supposed to be going into hospital rooms to show mercy and compassion. You see what I'm saying? I put myself, you know, have people in your life who know exactly how to push your buttons. They, you, they know exactly how to rile you up. They know exactly how to pull out the, the worst part of who you are, the part that you're trying to keep pushed down, the part you're trying to let God, let Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're, you're trying to let that be transformed. But you get around these people and they pull you out. And why then do we put ourselves in those positions that they take away some of the peace that we have? Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That, that basic leadership model. Someone's in your face, you stay calm. It's hard to do. I grew up in a household where if you didn't do what I was asking you to do, then uh, apparently I wasn't loud enough. So I'm going to say it a little louder. And I started raising my children that way. And I can't take, take you to an exact time or place or a moment that it, it changed for me. But I, I began to realize as I, I did stay-at-home dad life for about four years while I was in seminary in Louisville. And I was raising our children. And they were the ages of one, to, one and three through four and six. That's the age. That's the time it went. I don't recommend that, gentlemen. Mamas, ha there's a reason we want mamas to stay home with the kids. Because God has created them in a way that they can naturally nurture. I wanted to naturally beat. <laughs> now, this is on internet, so it's not really true. But there came a point when I realized for my two and four-year-old, screaming at them wasn't doing any good. They're not, that doesn't, all that does is scare them. I wanted them to be changed. I wanted their behavior to be changed from the inside out. So we had to, I can't tell you when that happened. It just happened. God got a hold of us. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone. In fact, I skipped this one. I'm going to go back to it, Kevin. Romans chapter 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You hear, you hear the subject of that verse? It's you. The subject of that is you. It has nothing to do with the other person. Are you a peacemaker? Do you keep the peace? Do you decide in yourself there's going to be peace today among me and everyone around? Or are you a little more, get a, I'm going to get fired up. I'm going to go after them. I'm going to get my own. I'm going to make sure my agenda, you see where we're headed? Now you're not meek and humble. You're not being a peacemaker. Leads us to the persecuted. Wow. Okay, Kenan. So what you're telling me is you're giving me good news. I'm, I recognize these needs in my life. I now have these actions in my life, but I'm going to end up persecuted anyway. Well, Jesus said we would. 
But check this out. And in chapter 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you go on and read in, chapter, in verses 11 and 12, it talks about persecuted more. But we're stopping here as we talk about our actions because this is where the inclusio ends that I told you about early last week. The inclusio begins with those who are poor in spirit, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. And those who are persecuted, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. So this is the bracket. This is the end of the bracket. Everything in here is all about the Beatitudes and the way we're supposed to be. So we're stopping here. Persecuted. To be or become subject, to be or become subject to systematic harassment and attack due to one's religious beliefs. It's specifically for righteousness. You're trying to be like Jesus, and you get persecuted. Now, I'll be honest with you. I probably haven't been, quote, persecuted in, since, like, middle school and high school. Because middle schoolers can be mean. High schoolers can give you peer pressure. And then when I got to college, they, they actually, there was, some, there was some respect for my beliefs and, and those I hung around with. But in middle school and high school, so you're going to act this way. You're going to be this way. You're not going to talk this way. You're not going to go where we're going. You're not, so I got, some, I got made fun of and I had some things, you know, mild persecution. Truth is, most of us don't understand what this verse is talking about. Because we're not really persecuted. In the, full, in the Far East and in other lands where... People come to know Jesus and their families follow other religions. They're kicked out of families if they're lucky. Sometimes they're killed because they no longer follow the family's religion. That's being persecuted for righteousness. But there are still areas in our life where we, where we are persecuted for righteousness. And even if it's not on that grand scale, keep in mind it pleases God and we are blessed. We're highly favored. We're accepted by him when we show that we value our relationship with him more than any other, more than our relationship with our family, more than our relationship with our friends, more than our relationship with our 401k. So that means we're not going to compromise our godly values in business or at our jobs. We're going to be persecuted. Now, I want you, I want you to see this. I want, we're going to bring it all together real quickly as we come to the end here. I want to bring it all together to make sure you, you understand exactly what we're talking about. And we can see the needs and we can see the action beatitudes come together. Our, our needy beatitudes are the, the first three we talked about. We're poor in spirit. We are mournful of spirit. And we are, we're mournful of sin, excuse me. And we are meek. These are, we're humble. These things drive us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be more like Jesus. We're going to throw some arrows in here so you can see the poor in spirit, the mournful, and those meek. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but you are very well aware. The more you understand you need Jesus, the more you're going to understand that you still need Jesus. So it goes back and forth. Then come our beatitudes of action, and we are merciful. We show that we are we have this character because we're pure in heart. We're peacemakers. When we put the arrows in here, honestly, I should have had the air. Originally here, you can see the arrows only going one way. As I thought about it, and I actually said it in the last service, those arrows need to go both ways. Because as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we see that we are going to be more merciful naturally because God is working in our lives. And then the more we're going to show mercy, the more we're going to go back and see that we still need to be more merciful. 
We can never be merciful enough. We can never be pure in heart enough. We can never be peacemaking enough so that it keeps going back to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we got this insatiable thing going on in our lives and it's showing us more and more. And because of these things, because of trying to be like Jesus and because he said you will be persecuted because they hate me so they're going to hate you, we have persecution going on in our lives. We, try, we recognize our needs. We make people uncomfortable because we have the Holy Spirit in us and we're not living our life the way they do. So they persecute us. We try to be merciful and we try to be a pure in heart and we try to be peacemakers, but they're going to persecute us. You're not going to go to the family event because you're coming to church instead because you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You're going to keep your Bible study. It's going to keep the head of whatever you're doing and now you're being persecuted. But notice the color scheme. This is what I really wanted, to, wanted you to see, how the Beatitudes work together. Pure in spirit is red. Merciful is red. Their arrows are red. They work together. I'm poor in spirit. I know I need God. I know I need his mercy. So that's going to lead me to be merciful because there once was I. Because I need it, I'm going to show it. I'm going to be a mournful person over sin so that I'm going to strive then to be pure in heart. I'm going to be meek and humble. I'm not going to push my own agenda. I'm not going to push my own interests. Instead, I'm going to keep the peace. You see how those work together? This has been a lot of information and we've got a lot going in there. And I've already been hearing conversations and emails and text messages. People have been coming up and saying, Kenan, I've, I've never seen the Beatitudes this way. I've heard them all my life. I've never had this much emphasis on them. I don't, I've never seen that it's this much. It's a picture of what I'm supposed to be. And they're taking these and they're going to Galatians chapter 5 and they're going to 2 Peter and they're going to Colossians and they're finding these other lists of virtues and they're making lists for themselves and they're saying, I'm struggling here and I'm struggling here. I'm doing pretty decent here, but I'm still struggling. And, and God is doing a work in people's lives. Maybe that's you. As Wason and the band come and as we prepare not only to have a time of commitment right now, but also to move forward toward a, a remembrance in the Lord's Supper. Where are you in all of this? As I asked you two weeks ago, and I asked you last week, and I'm going to ask you again today. Are you satisfied? Is your character, is this portrait of a disciple does it describe you? And if it does, great. But if you're like any of the rest of us, it doesn't perfectly describe you because we have not yet become like Jesus. And there's going to be areas that we need him to work in our lives.